If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy, and I work here at the II in the editorial team. And I'm Harry, and I'm also on the editorial team. And today we've got for you The Ignorance of Experts, featuring author of How the World Thinks, Julian Virginie, philosopher of biology, Ellen Clark, and radical philosopher, Ben Burgess. And this took place in 2022 at How the Light Gets in Festival in Hay, a philosophy festival produced by the team here at the II. So Harry, tell us a bit more about today's debate. So this debate is about the um, whether experts are capable of giving facts that are relevant to people's lives and whether those can form a part of policy or uh, orientate our societies in such a way as to respond to them. This debate was originally programmed during the COVID pandemic where follow the science was the mantra and yet certainly after the fact this has been a, a questionable claim but whether it was followed or whether it's politically expedient this debate will hopefully answer how scientific facts are useful, whether they can be an authority on public matters, and whether scientific facts make sense outside of a narrative other than to propose an argument for change. Well, I think it's always said to have a very, very interesting debate then. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this debate, Ganesh Taylor. Science is the belief in the ignorance of experts, argued Richard Feynman. He held that the best science respects no authority and is not a learnt set of facts, but rather a rigorous method of questioning in search of a better account. And yet, in the pandemic, governments and commentators propounded the opposite, that experts should be followed without question. Feynman proposed that good science guesses at theories and then looks to see whether they are supported by the data. But in public debate, there is rarely clarity, in fact, about the theory and little focus on the data. So should we see science not as an agreed body of knowledge, but a method to improve our account of the world? Should science never have been seen as an authority? Or are authorities necessary since we cannot all test all of the theories all of the time? So, to meet our wonderful speakers, uh, to my far left we have Julian Bagini, who is a philosopher, writer, journalist. He is an author, co-author, and or editor of over 20 books, including The Godless Gospel, How the World Thinks, The Virtues of the Table, and The Ego Table, and also The Ego Trick. 
to my immediate left is Ellen Clark. Uh, she's a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Leeds, and her work explores the metaphysics and epistemology of biological science, especially the ontology of the living world. And to my immediate right, we have Ben Burgess, who is the columnist for the Jacobin magazine and a regular opinion contributor to the Daily Beast, an adjunct philosophy professor at Morehouse College and host of the Give Them an Argument podcast and YouTube show. I'm sure you're all familiar with the format at this point in time, but I'm basically going to ask uh, an opening question to each one of our speakers in turn, and they get three minutes apiece to, to answer it, and then we'll go into the main part of the debate so you're aware, okay? So the first question, or the opening pitch as it were, is should science be seen as an authority or was Feynman right to say that science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Julian, can you start us off? Thanks very much. I think often with these things, I end up like thinking that the way the question has been posed has, has made it too polarised. Um, I, I think, the, the, look, here's the way I'll really look at the whole issue of expertise. Um, Jacques Rancière wrote a, a very fine little book a few years ago called uh, Hatred of Democracy. And it's really quite good, I think, at sympathetically understanding why it is that so many people seem to have got it in for experts, when a lot of people who are scientists, academics, think, you know, well, this, this is ridiculous, we, we need experts, don't we? And Rancière's point is a very simple one, which is that what we should be against and what people are rightly against is what he calls a monopoly of expertise. In other words, is where certain experts get to pronounce upon everything, essentially, right? Whereas, in reality, there is a plurality of expertise. And I think that in a lot of things, the true expert is actually like a collective. So if you think about bioethics, who's the expert on bioethics? Well, I mean, there are bioethicists in universities, but, you know, the, the best bioethics commissions and laws are formulated by these philosophers alongside practitioners, doctors, medics, people representing civil society. So expertise in most domains requires a coming together. Within that, there are people with particular expertises, and that has to be respected. If you don't respect that, you're just, you know, you're in a fantasy world, because of course we don't know uh, everything about everything. So it's, it's getting that balance right, and the, the pandemic thing, follow the science, that, that was misleading, because there were scientific experts which should have been listened to, and often they weren't, and that was really, really wrong, but it was never just a simple matter of going to the epidemiologist or whatever, maybe saying, what should we do, and then go away doing it, because, you know, public policy involves not just making a decision about what the best, what the science is, it's also about um, how one should restrict freedoms, economy, etc., etc. So it's that, it's the plurality of expertise, yes, monopoly of expertise, no. Amazing, thank you for keep keeping on time there as well. Um, Ellen, can we turn to you? Do you think that science should be seen as an authority? Uh, so I'm going to talk a bit about the relationship between um, what people often talk about facts and uh, data. And uh, the relationship between those things on the one hand and, and scientific theories or hypotheses on the other. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about a notion that philosophers of science called um, the problem of underdetermination, because I think more people should know about it. And basically, you know, the, the upshot is that um, theory is never fully determined by data, right? So and you've got sets of facts or, or empirical observations or measurements 
to come up with a theory or a hypothesis on the basis of those is always to sort of do something extra, right? It's always to go beyond those facts. And there's a little sort of visual metaphor that um, I think is, is helpful to, to illustrate this. Um, so if you imagine a simple graph, it's not a complicated graph, but it's, it's got an X and Y axis, so there's, there's two variables. Um, and let's put some data points on this graph. So you've got, like, say, three dots, and they are, you know, capturing the relationship between the two variables somewhere, and they're, you know, marking uh, three, three points on that graph. Let's say that's the data, those are the facts. In themselves, they're not very interesting. There's not a lot you can do with them, right? They don't do helpful things like tell you about the future, right? If you want to learn about the future, then you need to draw a line. You need to fit a curve to those dots on the graph. Um, but how do you do that? So you've got like three, three dots in a, in a square space. There's loads of different ways you can join those dots. If I had a whiteboard, I would <laughs> show you, you know, a bunch of different sorts of squiggles that would join all three dots, right? But in trying to like, make a prediction, what we want to do is find, in some sense, the right curve to fit those dots. But how are we going to find the right curve? The important thing is that the data itself, right, which is just those three dots, it can't tell us how to join the dots, right? The data is just the dots. Now, I'm a realist. I believe that sometimes we do successfully join up the dots in a way that you know, it just really does. We, we, we make successful predictions. Um, but the point is that we can't do that by using the data. We have to use something else. Um, my view is that we're, the best understanding of what else we're doing when we figure out how to join those dots is we're applying values, right? Uh, we're letting our theory be um, value-laden. And in general, you know, this is what always goes on, right? Scientists marshal different sorts of values to help them decide how to join those dots. Um, and there's probably better and worse ways of marshalling those values. What I think is really problematic is when they pretend that that's not going on and that the facts and the data are speaking to them for themselves. Um, it's something that sort of feminist philosophers of science have long pointed out, that you know, if, you're, if you're being disingenuous about the work that values are doing in, in fitting that curve, then it's really easy to sort of hide various you know, social agendas behind that kind of appearance of uh, objectivity, the view from nowhere. Um, you know, I don't believe in it. There is no view from nowhere when it comes to Fitting a, fitting a curve to a graph. Um, there's different values you can use to influence you, and it's better if you're just open about that, um, and if you try to make sure that there's a, as broad a diversity as possible of different values helping to inform that choice. Amazing. All right, thank you, Ellen. Ben, you're up. What do you think? Should science be seen as an authority? Uh, yeah, I think science should be seen as an authority on some questions, but not others, which is an incredibly boring thing to say, but I think it does get interesting when we drill a little bit more into details. I think there's a piece of this about epistemology, about knowledge, and there's a piece of this about politics, and if I really hurry, I can do both in three minutes. So uh, I think when it comes to the epistemology question, yeah, should you always defer to experts or people who are perceived as experts or presented as experts on everything? Even when it comes to strictly factual issues, clearly not. See weapons of mass destruction. Um, should you generally, as a default, on strictly factual issues, defer to people who have expertise about them that you can't? Yeah, I think generally that should be the default. Um, we can't all be experts on everything. Uh, sometimes a certain kind of intellectual division of labor is completely legitimate. I spend my life researching subject A and report back to you. You spend your life researching subject B and report back to me. That's fine. That makes sense. Uh, where I think it does get tricky is when you go from there to 
policy. Because um, when you're talking about policy choices, you're never just talking about the factual information, the kinds of things that experts can actually be experts about. You're also talking about um, policy goals, right? Which are ultimately about what we ought to do. And as David Hume very correctly points out, uh, you can't derive an ought from it is. You know, factual information can be very relevant to telling you how to achieve your policy goals, but it can't tell you which goals you should care about in the first place, which how to value, balance different values like Julian was talking about. Um, so that's one thing. I also think that there's a kind of technocratic liberalism that, you know, even though I largely agree with these people about COVID, I'm triple vaccinated, I will be quadruple vaccinated the nanosecond the CDC tells me to. Uh, but uh, I think that there's a kind of technocratic liberalism that was already very dominant in a lot of mainstream discourse that's become much more dominant because of COVID that overdoes deference to experts, even on strictly factual issues in ways that can be incredibly dangerous. Um, and so I'd, I'd point to, for example, uh, willingness to support you know, sweeping new social media censorship uh, efforts against so-called misinformation, which I think is kind of a nonsense word. You know, Lies exist, mistakes exist, misinformation is an unhelpful pseudo-technical term. Um, that you know, I think is incredibly short-sighted and is one place I think deference to experts can go very wrong. Fascinating stuff. Okay, well, thank you for, for sort of throwing out all of the, the, the key issues there. In our, in our first theme, I, I'd like to dive into this question about science. Let's just focus in on science itself, first of all. So should we see science then not as the truth, but rather as this sort of method to improve our account of the world. Let's start there about, about that. Um, Julian, are you happy to dive in? Yeah, okay, I, I think I'll dive in a bit because I'm actually quite curious to hear a bit more what Ellen says about this because I think I probably said, if I've got anything interesting to say, I might have said it already. So, um, <laughs> science as the, the truth. I mean, I think most people would say that, you know, <laughs> You, you can overstate these things, right? I mean, there are certain things about the world which aren't um, scientific. You know, free will is not an issue settled by science, I would say. But I think when, uh, when I get worried sometimes is that there's in a certain kind of philosophical, um, slightly pedantic in a good way frame of mind, we start to emphasize the ways in which, you know, truth is not this big thing with a capital T, theory is underdetermined by evidence and so forth. And I kind of worry that there's, it's very easy for that to be taken in the wrong way. It's this little slide from people hear that, and then what they actually hear in their heads is, oh, well, science is just a theory. Um, it's all just value-laden. It's really our values driving it, not the facts at all, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would be a mistake. Now, I don't think Ellen would go that far, but I suppose what I'd like to hear a bit is because I, am, I think it is really, really true to appreciate the fact that a lot of what has been presented as just empirical science in history has been extremely uh, value-driven, uh, particularly things around like, you know, biology, pharmaceuticals. There's all sorts of stuff in there where there are huge sort of assumptions around, around sex and gender which have distorted things. But, I mean, if you push it to things like laws of thermodynamics, E equals MC squared, I mean, how are those things really value-driven, except in a very thin sense, if you like, there's certain values around economy of explanation, if you like, which are values, all right? You know, that we tend to favor the most economical explanation over one which is more complicated. You could say that's sort of value-laden, but it's not value-laden in the sense a lot of people would think of as value-laden, which is more to do with 
politics and ethics. And you know, remember, you know, Lucia Rigoro famously said e equals mc squared was a sexed equation, and loads of people went sort of crazy over that and thought that that was ridiculous. And I have to say, I found it very, very hard to understand how that wasn't ridiculous. I actually interviewed her once, and I didn't come out any more enlightened. So I suppose if we're going to say that we we have to accept the fact that values are driving science in lots of ways. I just want to sort of like caution that we don't exaggerate that, that there are lots of things like laws of thermodynamics equals mc squared, where if there are values behind it, they're pretty uncontentious and general values such as economy of explanation, et cetera, et cetera. They're not ethically thick things around equality, uh, justice, liberalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so anyway, but that's really something for Ellen to come back on and tell me I'm wrong, maybe, in a value-laden way. <laughs> Uh, so certainly um, lots of people have tried to make a distinction between, let's just call them good values and bad values when it comes to picking a theory. Um, and on the good values list, you get things like um, simplicity, um, precision, uh, generality, um, fruitfulness or scope or unifying power. Um, and people have tried to say you know, they're, the, they're the epistemic values, they're, they're the good, good values. Um, and then all the other things, all of the sort of social, political, religious, whatever, they're bad values. They should be kept out of science. You know, they should not be allowed to bias matters. The trouble is, I mean, on the one hand, the trouble is that <laughs> no one's agreed on what the list of good values are. Uh, people have pointed out that um, if you disagree about what the values on the good list are, um, then you get different conclusions, right? If you, if you favor simplicity, you get a different answer from if you favor precision or generality a lot of the time. Um, and more profoundly, I think, the, the, the argument that's been made is that those, those good values are supposed to be, you know, guides to objective truth. And it's like, well, we need an argument then. We need, we need something to persuade us that, say, simplicity should be a guide to truth. But it, it seems to have to take the form of, like, oh, well, the world is simple. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, no. Why, why are you assuming it is? But can I ask a bit, are, are there any controversial values that would, would lead someone to say, E does not equal MC squared. Do you see what I mean? I mean, because I, I understand that you can't make this neat distinction between the good values and the bad values, and people disagree exactly what the, the list is. But on what reasonable sort of value could someone say, no, E does not equal MC squared? I'm not going to send a rocket to the moon on the basis of that equation, right? I actually, uh, would, I actually wonder if that's true, that you can't get the clean division. You might get disagreement about uh, within each list, right? But you might still be able to get a very clean division between epistemic values and non-epistemic values so that even if when we're over on the epistemic values list we disagree about whether simplicity matters more than fruitfulness or vice versa whatever uh, we can still see a pretty clear distinction between those and moral values those just seem like very different kinds of values and I wouldn't say that's like good values and bad values I just say epistemic and non-epistemic like valuing justice and having a more equal society is a great value it's the best value but uh, it's also a really unhelpful value to import into evaluation of scientific theories, you know, because if you're like looking at, I don't know, evidence about, you know, IQ or something, and you know, you just, oh, no, I can't think that, right? Because they have a, because then that would get in the way of that good moral value. That seems, you know, bad in that context, but it, it, it does seem to me, maybe naively, like we can separate types of values at least. Or do you think it's to do with the kinds of questions we're trying to address? Sure. Like, for example, I'm struck that when we talk about, like, the truths and the ones that are more value-free, we're almost always talking about, like, physics and mm. maths, mm. things that are a lot 
easier in the best possible way to sort of be true or right or wrong about. Whereas I think in biology, we find it a lot harder to, to, to walk that line because there's a more direct relationship between here's me making a statement about the biology of, say, brains or sex hormones or whatever it is. And then there's that, that connection, that tangible connection to our lives is very, very much there. So do you think it's related well, to that? They have a, I mean, that could... I think it makes perfect sense to me to say that they have a, that things that you could discover in biology could be very relevant to moral and political arguments in ways that, you know, E equals MC squared is less obviously relevant, you know, relevant to those. That makes sense. But it still does seem to me that what you actually conclude about brains and hormones and all of that stuff, you know, should to the greatest extent possible, we're all flawed and imperfect and we won't do a great perfect job, but you know, at least as a regulative goal, right? You know, that you should try to uh, have your investigation about what's actually true about brains and hormones be uninfluenced by what's going to be, you know, what the consequences are gonna be by those debates, right? I mean, the, right. the list of values that's gonna be relevant are those values like simplicity and fruitfulness and all of that stuff. And we could disagree about which of those values are, are good values, whether, you know, whether all of them are even real values, whatever. But it still seems like we could make this basic distinction between types of values, I would think. Uh, just on this point about sort of maybe physics being different, I, uh, you could even say that our, you know, our tendency to think of physical laws or generalities as, as more likely to be true is actually a symptom of one of our biases towards reductionism, you know, favoring explanations that are very general, assuming that the universe is kind of homogeneous, you know. A lot of physicists are arguing that, you know, maybe the universe doesn't have the same laws all the way through, but, you know, maybe things are much more um, scattered and complex and yes, less unified than we, you know, with our prejudice towards simplicity assume. Yeah, to, to be clear, my claim wasn't more likely to be true. My claim was just, like, less immediately relevant to, like, sort of big political, you know, kinds of debates that, you know, that the, you know, stuff about brains and hormones could end up being relevant to thinking about something that actually has to do with gender equality in the real world some, some way, whereas the social implications are often, you know, if they're a lot less direct, I would think, with physics. For me, I, I, can, I can agree with what you're saying. I can agree with what you're saying, but in a way, my worry is it turns out to be a somewhat sort of technical sort of qualification. So it's like, you know, let us remember that although we're treating these things as though they are kind of universal laws, they may not be, you know, who, who knows whether the universe is a, you know, Nazi Cartwright talks about dappled universe or whether it's really uniform all the way through. We don't really be sure of this. And so there's a certain kind of like little qualification you need to put in. But in practice, that is, that makes sort of zilch difference. Because if you're going to send a, a, a rocket to the moon, if you're going to create a car, if you're going to do any technology, you basically, if you don't do it on the basis of the, 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 the laws of physics as currently understood kind of thing, it's not going to work. It, and, 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 and no value. You can't sort of say, I don't like the values behind this. I'm going to change the equation. So, so I, I just worry about this special overstating, which leads people to think that these things, and, and in a sense, this debate turns out, it's like, what, what, what are we most worried about? You know, I think what some people are most worried about is people going away with the idea that science has just got it all pinned down and is an absolute unquestionable truth. And so they want to push the ways in which um, we ought to be more cautious about that. On the other side, perhaps people like me, I'm more worried about people kind of like 
getting carried away with that idea and kind of imagining we don't have to really sort of like take these scientific they're not they're just theories they could be wrong you know so therefore I'll go and get some crystal healing down in the field for example you know rather than go to the doctor you know um, sorry I shouldn't just uh, <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't I shouldn't live live traders live, but yeah live, 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 you live, live, live. feel free to um, you know <laughs> I, I mean just as a um, I'm not sure I said this before, but I'm, I'm a molecular biologist, so I, I feel like relatively strongly about this stuff. But isn't that the point of reproducibility? I mean, the idea of, you know, fair enough, we as humans are, you know, imperfect vessels who have our values and yada yada. But one of the arguments for why reproducibility is so important is the fact that, you know, people across time in different places with different values can supposedly come to the same conclusion. And that's one of the methods of science to sort of improve our accuracy. Um, but, you know, talking about this, um, you know, who do you trust and the role of the science in, in sort of policy stuff, let's move on to our second theme, which is, you know, loosely, did governments and politicians get it wrong during COVID in relying on, quote, the science to justify policy? And specifically within that, it's the sort of the use of science in, in politics that I think we're, we want to sort of lean into there. Ben, what are you, what are you thinking? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of governments that got lots of things wrong. I'm not sure that's why, uh, that the you know, excessive, um, excessive reliance on expert opinion. I mean, I think that you know, one distinction, I guess, that hasn't really been made that's maybe useful to is even beyond the point about facts and values, there's having expertise on the facts doesn't necessarily mean that you're great at figuring out what follows for those facts. Uh, and, you know, sometimes there are issues that are simple enough that somebody, you know, with legitimate expertise can explain their reasoning. And you can say, well, that doesn't really make sense, right? You know, that the, you know, I'll, I'll take your word, your word for it on the premise, right? You know, but that doesn't really make sense. So an example from very early in the pandemic was the point when all the public health authorities were saying, you shouldn't wear masks. Uh, that's actually going to be worse if you wear a mask. That they uh, that you'll mess it up. You know, you you fools, you can't do it right. You know, and uh, and and you're actually more likely, you know, get COVID. And if you if you looked at the documents like uh, CDC or WHO on this, um, the stated reasons didn't really make that much sense. It was like, oh well, you know, uh, people will be reckless because they'll think they're safe. It's like, all right, that's an argument against seatbelts. You know, <laughs> that's uh, you know. So so I think there are cases like that. But overall, I mean, I don't. Um, I don't know. Maybe like Julie to have a different perspective on this, based on some of what he said earlier. You know, maybe Ellen would. But like, I think, um, I think by and large, you know, the the things that uh, governments did most seriously wrong. You know, I, I, you know, I don't think can particularly be laid on the uh, the the doorstep of like, you know, paying too much attention to epidemiologists. I think often it was kind of the other way around. Yeah. Right. I mean, what yeah, yeah no, I agree with that. I think you know the point was that follow, we're just following the science was a smokescreen. They, they, you know, they people did that to, to to avoid having to justify themselves politically, but they they weren't in many countries in in the U.S. with Trump as president and with our joke of a government here. I mean, they just often just they weren't actually basing their policy on on the best scientific advice. I think, and often they they were ignoring it. So it was using it as as a smokescreen, effectively. Um, also, the other thing is, I mean, to, to, it's a good example of how people use this kind of conveniently. One of the ways in which they kind of claimed to be following the science, which was most misguided, was they were 
claiming to follow the science around behavioral psychology and behavioral science, right? So like you were saying, how, you know, oh, if people wear masks, they actually become riskier. And, and they were saying, if we can't do lockdowns, because there's only so long people will tolerate lockdowns. If we go too early, everyone will break it, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that was, again, it was, it was very, very sloppy, because first of all, this whole behavioral science field is far too young to have any sort of like strong conclusions from it. You know, what we know about how people behave, no one knew how people would behave in a global pandemic. They just didn't have the data, right? You can, you can only base your conclusions on the basis of um, relevant past experience, and there wasn't relevant past experience. So it would always have been overconfident anyway. It also turns out, in the case of the UK government, they invented things that weren't even part of the science. So the, the, the behavioural impact team, whatever they're called, um, yeah, that the advised the government, never came up with the phrase, I think, behavioural fatigue or something. There was some kind of like uh, fatigue phrase they used. And, and the government was saying, you know, we can't um, bring in these lockdowns because there's this thing called whatever it is fatigue and people will tire of it uh, the scientists didn't even come up with that it wasn't, a sci it wasn't a scientific phrase so there was a lot of just hiding behind the science and claiming to be following it so I think yeah, I agree the problem was they didn't listen enough to the science and, f and, and base their ba not follow it but base their policy sufficiently on the science rather they just used it as a way of like claiming that they, they didn't have to take any political responsibility I mean I wonder, I wonder how you, you, what you think in that case about the fact that obviously you, it's a global pandemic, right? Everybody yeah. had different responses. So famously in Europe, of course, there was Sweden. Mm. So how does, how does Sweden fit into this? Perhaps their like more apparently laissez-faire approach was maybe arguably the right one in that case because they went, well, we follow the science. There isn't much science. So we, what do you think? Well, I think, well, I'm not sure I didn't want to hear it, but I think they were following, I think they thought they were following the science. Their chief scientific advisor, when justifying what was going on, was, was appealing to evidence for saying why this was the best policy. So, I mean, it really just reinforces the point that in areas like this, you talk about data points and, and how you join them. In this case, we had quite a lot of data points. There was no obvious, uncontroversial way of joining them to give us a theory of, of what the best action would be in the pandemic, surely, in this case. A, a graph's never going to tell you what to do, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> graphs are just graphs. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think we're in agreement, really. I think it's just nonsense, this idea that they were following science. I assumed it was like a legal move, almost. It was kind of a way of saying, like, oh, if I screw this up, blame him, <laughs> yeah. you know, don't blame us. Like, just transparently. Um, I mean, how could it have been otherwise? There's so many... You know, normative questions that had to go into a balance of reasons, right? About you know uh, how bad it is if if some people die. How mm. bad is it if people miss out on education? You know, how how sort of risk averse? You know, how bad is is anxiety? Like, it's a it's a balance of reasons. And for my money, you know, they should have been much more explicit about uh, explicit about what those uh, reasons were and how they were weighing them. And then people might have been uh, felt a bit more reassured. So, I mean, obviously trust was a big part of this, and there is just this general theme of, like, if you say, oh, th you know, the science backs this, there's just this implicit trust that happens, right? Yeah. So is there? Shouldn't there be? It was loaded into the question that there's been a, you know, a retreat of, of trust in authority, um, mm. anti-vaxxers and things. And I suppose, let's not say I've got sympathy, let's say this. Um, I think some people are becoming a bit more aware recently that, let's say knowledge is situated, right? That the, the expertise comes from a particular position, a perspective, often a social position. And when people don't see their own, you know, backgrounds represented and the people, you know, doing the science and telling them what to do, 
they're rightly suspicious of it. And, you know, it's probably not as explicit as them thinking, oh, I can't see what the background assumptions are that they're using to, you know, come up with these policies, so I can't be reassured that, that my values are being represented. But, you know, that, that, that makes a, some good sense of what's going on. And it's, it's caused lots of communities to turn away from science. You know, there's a certain thread of sort of feminist philosophy of science that just rejects it, which is awful, right? Because science has got all of the resources and all of the, you know, all of the money and the, the, the big telescopes and things. Um, so we shouldn't turn away from it, we should use it. But I think it would be very helpful, as far as trust in science goes, if the people using the microscopes and whatnot were more diverse so that people felt like their values went into this balance of reasons. I have to ask in that case do you do you two think that the who is doing the science matters as much if not more in that case than the person who generally is the the face of it right some policy person some legal person some somebody else is usually the person who uses the science it's not the scientists who get carted out on the whole right like yeah i mean i, I guess i would say that the um I mean, look, I'm, I'm all in favor of diversity among people who are, you know, actually manning the, uh, you know, the, the microscopes. I, that's a good social value. And so, sure, yes, absolutely. But I, I, guess I, I guess I have to say, like, at least especially going back to the context of COVID, you know, thinking about that, uh, I'm actually a bit, you know, when you think about the breakdown of trust in science, I'm actually much more concerned about the public face people than the people behind the microscopes. I, I kind of think the people behind the, you know, mostly metaphorical, you know, not always, microscopes in this case, like they kind of did the best they could, right? You know, like they, they actually did a reasonably good job. And, you know, look, we, we got, um, I, I think, uh, had, you know, figured things out, all things considered remarkably quickly. I think the things you could point to that, you know, that epidemiologists got wrong initially, thinking surfaces matter more than they did, stuff like that. I think that was corrected at like light speed in the great, greater speed of things, right? You know, we certainly got vaccines shockingly quickly, right? You know, people with the microscopes, they're, they're good, right? They're fine. You know, people with the people behind microphones, I'm much more concerned with because I think they did a lot of things actually that were kind of own goals that unnecessarily undermined the public credibility of, uh, of science. So uh, the mask thing that I mentioned earlier is one example. I mean, another, um, I, I also think just times when it just seemed blatantly political, you know, the, the, the sort of, um, the use of it, that it was just very obvious that people were sort of leaning on their expertise, but that, you know, that they were, that it was, you could see from space that there were political considerations that were dictating, and you know, how they're saying it. all of these things, I think, you know, I think unnecessarily, again, I don't think you can really blame the people with the microscopes, but I think all of these things people behind microphones were doing did, un did contribute heavily to undermining the credibility of, you know, health science at like a time, you know, that's kind of the worst time to do it because, you know, you need to convince everybody to get vaccinated and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes people are a bit sort of um, sloppy about thinking, what, what exactly is it that people are not trusting? And I think sometimes people think, oh, people don't trust science. They think that science is, is bogus. And I don't, I don't think, I don't have the data points for this, but I don't think that's the main issue. I think the main issue people have is what the science is being used for. Because if you think about it, a lot of things that people are worried about assume 
degrees of competence that scientists do not have, right? These scientists cannot put these little nanobots into your um, vaccines, which will make you zombies following the government. That is incredible trust in the power of science. It's incredible distrust in the power of authorities and the users of science, right? And I think a lot of it is like that. Like the vaccination, again, why, why were a lot of communities worried about vaccination? Again, they thought, technically speaking, the government were incred able to do remarkable things like, you know, um, sterilise African-American communities, etc. Right? So huge trust in the power of science, but not in the people using it. And then you ask, well, why did they have that? You know, well, you know, Western governments haven't experimented on um, Afro-American... Yes, they have. I mean, there's, there's past evidence of this. So I think that sometimes people sort of like get... They make the wrong defence. They start going about how great science is and don't recognise that what you need to do is you need to get people's trust in how that science is being used and for what purposes. And, and that's not scientific, right? That's, that's about the, the politics and the ethics and who controls it, who's driving the agenda. And again, you can make lots of reasons why people are justifiably suspicious. The way pharmaceutical companies, for example, have driven uh, research and driven the promotion of certain drugs over others with huge detrimental effects. So people are not stupid or paranoid because they are distrustful about how science is being used. I think they're actually, you know, they may, they may worry about the wrong things, and in the specifics, but the general concern is, is spot on, really, isn't it? Well, okay, so now that we're talking about the past, I think um, as we sort of approach the last section of this debate, it'd be really interesting to talk about how we're meant to approach stuff in the future, right? Given that we know about this uh, rocky past, we have this immediate pandemic situation that really did have quite a significant impact on how we view science, and, and, you know, it's brought this sort of idea of science and its role in society to the forefront of our minds. So, you know, basically, is a belief in science as an ultimate account of the world sort of in retreat? And is this a good thing? Or is this sort of pretty dangerous for the future, do we think? Like, should we demote it? I would kind of come back to something that Julian said at the beginning about um, highlighting science as a community. Um, I think our, you know, our best bet is to focus on the fact that the you know, scientific knowledge, um, insofar as it can get close to something uh, approximating objectivity, it's always going to be at the sort of collective level. Um, and that it's, I, I'm not someone who um, you know, thinks that you can sort of demarcate science from other things very neatly myself actually I think it's a you know a bit of a blurry line um, so you know with all of these things I think the focus needs to be on making sure that the community is operating in the sort of way that can uh, justify people trusting in it um, by which I mean it you know it needs to be diverse and it needs to be um, democratic so that things are sort of done openly and transparently and things are um, you know being being weighed in the right sort of ways I mean, I wonder how we. Uh, I'm just going to continue questioning in that case. How do we, how do we? Fine. Let's let's say that that's that's what happens. How do how do we prevent sort of trends and groupthink in that case, sort of eking in? You know, isn't the whole point of the scientific method supposedly that it doesn't matter who's doing it, and 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 that that's supposedly the 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 barrier, the the protection to that kind of thing. 
yes, but that's not true. <laughs> you know, it's socially, politically problematic to pretend that it's value-free when it's not, right? That's just right, straight out dangerous. Um, what you should be doing instead is just, you know, being a lot more upfront about the values that are operating and make sure that they're being aired and adjudicated. I don't think group think, I mean, there's not, uh, there's not that much consensus in science, right? So, so in terms of um, bringing these values out into the open, I don't think there's much danger that everyone's going to converge, um, but they need to be, you know, weighed in a democratic fashion, is what I'd say. I mean, would, would you, how would you have felt during the pandemic if, I mean, to some extent that already happened during the pandemic, didn't it? Like, for example, with the mask thing, that was part of what was really scary, I think, for, for, for the public was suddenly one minute one scientist is there being like, yeah, no, don't wear masks, it's no good for you, and the next minute somebody else pops up. So how, how do you... Does it need to have a public face? Like, how do you find a collective face for science? And is it intuitively harder to trust something if it's just a sort of rabble? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that, um, I mean, in that case, right, like, I think it is important to remember that, like, in the mask example, there, you know, it's not like there was some great new scientific research that showed <laughs> that actually this does, you know, like, this is effective, you know, like, no, really nothing, you know, particularly new had come in that point, you know, it was a, you know, it was a political decision because they've been trying to conserve, you know, conserve them, you know, for, um, for medical professionals, which is, was more or less admitted to later. And then the really unfortunate part is that the public face people, you know, your Anthony Fauci's and whatnot didn't like resign when it became clear that they'd said things that weren't true, right? That they, that they sort of, you know, knew weren't true and yeah I mean I, I think that the I think that there are, I think that if you're in that position of communicating what the uh, public health expert the actual public health experts think to the broader public then yeah then going to Julian's point about what it is that people distrust when they so called you know quote unquote distrust science um, I think that you know I think it's really important to have people in those positions who are you know I wouldn't say this about anything else you know because I kind of hate cult of technocratic expertise in most areas right but like who are as close as you can reasonably get to apolitical technocrats and uh, and who uh, and and who are not going to be kept in office if you know if if they are you know sort of obviously saying things that that aren't true like I I mean I actually don't think it's that deep I think that if people are uh, if people are told things that weren't actually true, they uh, and that they have reason to think that, that you knew weren't actually true, they're less likely to trust you in the future. I mean, I think I, mean, I think I still think most of the problem is about the reporting and presentation of the science. When when you get scientists themselves and papers, they do tend to be on the whole suitably qualified in their conclusions. And with masks, I, I don't remember hearing a scientist say masks don't work. Forget it. I I remember scientists saying. We don't have any good evidence at the moment that they're going to work, and we have some reason to think that they won't, okay? And that's the message. So they didn't flip-flop. They just kind of, you know, went from a position of saying at the moment, this is this thing, the provisional claim, to it turning out not to be correct. And then people say, oh, you just changed. One minute you're telling us this, one minute you're telling us that. Well, people have to sort of learn that a lot of scientific claims are provisional, and that's not a weakness of science. That's a strength, precisely that they were able to um, change their minds. So I think that in terms of like to rebuild trust, it's difficult because I think that people think that to be trusted, you've got to give clear, strong messaging. But I think with science, it's the other way around. You've got to get people to sort of like you've always got to say, 
we only have this degree of confidence in this. It's not certain, et cetera, et cetera. And the other thing is, I think about the domain issue as well, because I think that a lot of the time, and some science, scientists are guilty of this too, um, you know, we talk about scientists, we are, but we're all talking about epidemiologists, oncologists, whatever it might be, virologists. They're all experts in one corner of it. And so often the problem is that people take that. So take a, a very, very simple example, you know, an oncologist might come up with a study which tells you that drinking red wine or something increases your risks of a certain cancer, right? Now, true, right? Does that mean that you should cut down on your wine? That evidence tells you nothing about that because it doesn't tell you about the all-cause risks. It doesn't tell you whether the, 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 you know, the, the other things in the red wine are good for other conditions or other cancers, etc., etc. So there's often this kind of problem that people take a very narrow result in science and then just overgeneralize from it. And that's not normally the fault of the scientists. It's normally the result of, of the reporting of it. So, yeah. It's a very self-serving example there. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's almost, well, I, I guess some people probably think that what we need for people to be, you know, reassured and feel confident in science is to, well, uh, you know, have, a, have an old white guy sitting by a fireplace telling us that you know this is all very simple and it's you know I understand it very well and there's no complexity and there's no confusion and this is what you need to do and you'll all be fine um but we're better than that aren't we well it's it's yeah. funny because do, do you think we need to be reassured by science does I don't, th I don't think we need to be reassured I think that the I think the problem is precisely when you have strong confident messaging that's not based on um that's, that's not based on what your best information actually indicates. I think if like on going back, you know, last time to the mask example, I think that the, I think that if, you know, and I'm not talking here about scientists, but I'm also not just talking about science reporters. I'm talking about public health authorities, yeah. right? And I think, you know, I think if the messaging from public health authorities initially had been less strong and confident, then that would have been a less public trust undermining, yeah. Yeah. you know, example. Yeah, but it's very difficult, isn't it? Because ideally what they should have said was, you know, when it, when it broke, we'd have said very calm, a calm version of fuck. <laughs> we, uh, God knows what's going to, this could be terrible. This could be the thing, this could be awful. Shit, we don't know. So in the meantime, let's just be, until, until we get on top of the facts, please stay at home, don't shake hands, wash your, you know, because we, do, we don't know which of these things are important or not yet. And we're not prepared to wait to find out. Okay, that would have been very unreassuring in a way. But actually, I think you probably could have said that in a way that was yeah. avoiding panic. Say, look, yeah. we can't panic because we don't know, but we just have to, until we know more, we're going to have to be really, really careful. Can we do this, folks? Can we do it? And people go, yeah. And because they, would, and they did, because people loved the first lockdown. It was really good. <laughs> well, didn't we? It was so lovely. You got to know your neighbours on your WhatsApp group and you went and gave food to your little old person next door. And it was... It was great. Um, I mean, I live in America. We don't do Drank that. Drank with wine. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> On that delightful note, I'm afraid we've got to wrap this up. So if you could put your hands together for our wonderful panellists. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on a platform of your choice and visit the iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.